Well, good morning. I was commenting to a couple of you as we came in this morning that we were greeted by a choir as the birds were singing on this beautiful morning. Just a reminder that all of creation is praising God and we got to join in that corporately this morning and what a treasure and joy it is. It's also days like this that make me wish we could have church outside. You know, one of the hardest things to do in this life is to deny yourself. Realize that? You know, whether we stop and think about it or not, we are you know, prone to do what we want. And to stop and put to death your desires, what you want, and to, whether it be just simply for self-control's sake or whether it's to prefer others, it's one of the hardest things. Just ask your children or your grandchildren. Instant gratification rules the day. The implicit and sometimes explicit model of our culture is do what feels right. And if you aren't convinced, then explain to me how Amazon Prime is so successful. You know, as if next day delivery wasn't enough, you can now do same day delivery. And this is the opposite of self-denial. We've been trained by the world around us to gratify our desires, to put ourselves first, to make certain that we have enough me time. But this is not the call of Christ. It's not the call of disciple. In fact, it runs opposite the path of discipleship. And that's no accident. Satan is constantly working in this world to make sin more attractive, to counter the call of Christ, to make it seem too difficult, too insurmountable, too hard to put others' needs before our own. This morning we come to Two parables Jesus speaks to his disciples as he reminds them of the surpassing value of the kingdom of God and how that perspective teaches them to deny themselves, to deny themselves in light of who Christ is and by having a right perspective of the kingdom of God. And really this is a message that we all need to be reminded of. In a culture that's shouting at us to gratify the, cell, the flesh, to satisfy ourselves and our own desires, we need this divine perspective. In fact, this divine perspective is the only way to maintain that attitude, that discipleship, that path of discipleship of self-denial. As we desire to seek and pursue Christ and the kingdom of God. If you haven't opened there already, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew Chapter 13, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew and as we come to these parables, we pick up in chapter 13, down in verse 44. And there we read, as Jesus speaks to his disciples, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come to these parables that were spoken to your disciples. Father, as we seek to be faithful disciples and followers of you, would you help us to rightly interpret them, to understand them? May we feel the weight of the calling and the conviction. 
And as we seek to reciprocate your great love for us, may we love you by following you and obeying you in all that you would have us to believe and to do this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Jesus had returned to the house after a day of teaching from a boat to the crowds. He was there in Galilee. The house he returned to was likely Peter's, as we've seen him using that as somewhat of a base of operations for his Galilean ministry. This day, if you remember, is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. It's the point at which he begins to speak to, specifically to the crowds, primarily in parables. And as we see, even to his disciples, he begins to speak more in parables. Jesus had left the crowds. He had returned to the house with his disciples. And that afternoon, that evening, as he's sitting there, we've seen that he's helping them to understand, to interpret these parables. As they draw near to him, he is walking through and explaining them. This is really a beautiful picture of what discipleship looks like, of what being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. It is to draw near to the Savior, to learn from him, to learn at his feet. To be a believer is not to have immediate and perfect knowledge of all things holy and good and of God, but rather it becomes a path of learning at the feet of the Master. And that's what we find these disciples doing. And as we've read, Jesus is not done speaking in parables as he picks up, not only explaining, but now he turns to directing a few parables that he has reserved for the ears of his disciples. And for us this morning as he has preserved them in his word for us through the Spirit. In verses 44 through 46, we encounter these two parables, one about a man, the other about a merchant. Before there were reliable banks and safe deposits and places for keeping valuables protected, persons would very frequently, they would bury valuable possessions, whether it be in the corner of a house or in a field. They would do this to hide it from vandals. They would do it when they would go away on a long journey in case someone might come and loot. Whether monies, jewels, clothing, or other items of worth, if there was no one home to protect them, there wasn't a bank to go deposit them in, so you would bury them. You would hide them. It's not at all uncommon to read stories of, even today, even actually this year, of persons stumbling across, particularly in the ancient Near East and Israel, these buried treasures. You see, Israel was, was there on the Levant. It was that fertile crescent, that way by the sea. And the armies for centuries, millennia, armies would go roll through back and forth over Israel. And in that turning of times and the wars that were waged over and over again, treasures were buried. In fact, it was so common that Jewish law even had a prescription that if a person found it in a field, it didn't matter if the field belonged to them or not, as long as they lifted it, that language is important, they lifted it from the field, as long as it didn't belong to the owner, it was theirs to keep because the treasures were so prevalent. Persons would hide these valuables in times of war to keep them from looting soldiers. If a person perished, their treasure remained hidden and buried. We read in the parable that finding this buried treasure brought joy to the man who found it. And that's really kind of what's expected, right? I mean, we always think, at least when we're young, we think about going on a treasure hunt. Or maybe finding some of this buried treasure. It's why there are so many metal detectors sold. So you go about, even on the beach, just looking for those little treasures, 
There's a reason people become treasure hunters and why we like to hear and read stories of finding buried treasure. But what's unique is we read that this man's joy leads him to go and sell all that he has to secure rights to the field. Again, technically speaking, under Jewish law, just finding it or lifting the treasure, he had ownership of it. But you could still get caught up in a lengthy dispute, especially if it was a great treasure that this seems to be. So the simplest way to avoid this was just buy the field outright. And the text says that he sells all that he has to purchase this field. It's an important statement because we see it repeated in the next parable, and we'll return to that statement in a moment. The next parable that Jesus told in quick succession was of a merchant. The merchants of Rome would traverse the world, seeking the great treasures in trade. Some have suggested that these merchants were as or more instrumental than Rome's armies in growing and securing the Roman Empire. And of all the jewels and of all the precious commodities that were traded, pearls were one of the most precious. Pearls are a little bit more ubiquitous these days. We see them all over, and so we may not think and recognize how precious they were, but you didn't have the same scuba gear. You didn't have the same ability to go and get these pearls. Pearls were found in the Red Sea. They were found uh, in the Persian Gulf, and those from the Persian Gulf were particularly valuable. Some of them were estimated in today's dollars to be worth tens of millions of dollars for a single pearl. There are stories of, of emperors and empresses like Cleopatra, who supposedly had two pearls that were of particularly great value. Well, this merchant, as we read, has spent a considerable time seeking, trying to find a great treasure, and upon finding this single pearl of great value, he, like the man in the field, sells all, sells all he has to acquire it. And this final summation ties the parables neatly together as we see the same outcome for the merchant as we do for the man. The selling of all in light of the surpassing value of the hidden treasure and the pearl. Throughout the first 1800 years of church history, these two parables were interpreted almost universally. Almost unanimously with a focus upon discipleship. However, in the past two centuries, there have been suggestions that these parables contain more of what is called a Christological focus. It suggested that the man and the merchant are actually a description of Christ, and that the situations describe Christ leaving heaven, giving up his life, his all, for sinners who would become disciples and citizens of the kingdom, having purchased them with his blood. Now, these statements are true. Those are absolutely true statements about Christ and what he did and the great sacrifice that he made. Christ did leave heaven. He did humble himself. He did take on human flesh. He did give his life as the payment and ransom for sinners who would be transformed by the Spirit of God into saints. And we don't want to downplay that. Those are important and significant truths. Nevertheless, interpreting the parables in this way seems to ignore the descriptions of seeking and finding that we've already seen of disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6.33 Matthew 7, 7 through 8. And as I believe we'll see, this discipleship metaphor of seeing this as the path of discipleship makes much better sense of these two parables. This historical interpretation, I believe, is the correct one. Additionally, don't forget the context. 
The context is, has now shifted. These parables were not just given generically to the crowd to teach them about Christ and the kingdom of heaven. They are given to the disciples. It's directed to those who had returned with Jesus to the home that afternoon or evening. And this recalls the twofold nature of parables. On the one hand, parables are intended to further obscure the message of the gospel from unbelieving and unrepentant hearts. To actually make it harder to Harden the cement of unbelief, as it were. But on the other hand, as we've discussed, parables are also intended to teach and instruct the disciple of Jesus Christ. And here at the end of Matthew 13, Jesus delivers parables to his disciples, not to obscure, but to reveal. With the purpose of instructing, of exhorting, and commissioning them in their job and their task as disciples. The two parables in verses 44 through 46 provide us with two types of persons who discover the kingdom of God. One almost accidentally, the other after great effort and seeking. And the differences these two parables provide are really just as important as their similarities. For while they are united in theme, they describe different experiences in coming to faith. And it's important to note this. Some persons are awakened to their spiritual poverty, their sin in an instance, almost stumbling upon the gospel, awakened as it was from a stupor. They hear the gospel and they respond. They weren't even seeking for it. Others spend their whole lives seeking for meaning to this life. They exhaust themselves in searching and trying to fill that empty void, whether it be with religion, whether it be with money, whether it be with entertainment, whether it be with acts of service, something to fill the void they know is missing. They know that there's more to this life. And so they seek and they seek and they seek. But until the Spirit opens their eyes to the hope of the gospel, they remain in darkness it's similar to what God says through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 65, 1, where we read, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. And so we have the picture here of two men who have come to saving knowledge, their eyes having been opened, spiritual insight being given to the kingdom of God. Now, returning to the parable, remember that when we read the kingdom of heaven is like, or in any other parable, such and such is like, that the parable is saying it is like the situation that follows or that is described, the metaphor or the allegory that follows. It is presenting a situation which here illustrates some facet of the kingdom. And so we need to ask, in what way is this situation like the kingdom of God? In what way are they like what we know about the kingdom of God up to this point? Well, these two parables describe the heavenly and, and the human experience of salvation. They describe the two sides of repentance. It's a description first of salvation, the awakening, the finding, the discovery of the kingdom of God, of being made a citizen of the kingdom of God. This work, as we know and as we have studied, as we looked at when we went through the Beatitudes, and as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, saying that it's wholly a work of God, saying, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This discovery, this awakening is wholly the work of the Spirit. As 
Paul writes in Titus 3, saying, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. By the washing, the regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And that's the finding. That's that first half of each parable. And it happens to different people in different ways, in different circumstances, at different times of life. But it is always in God's perfect timing. I know there are many who long and wish and look back saying, I wish the Lord had saved me earlier. I wish he had saved me at this time. But you need to recognize and understand this was always part of God's plan. As perfect as that may seem in your mind, it somehow brings God greater glory and it's for his greater good and your greater good that you were saved when you were. Then upon finding the treasure, these parables describe repentance and the life of discipleship. Notice that the selling and purchase follow the finding. It is after that awakening that has taken place. Because again, one cannot buy or earn their way into the kingdom of God. However, the one who has found it and recognizes the true value of what they have found will do everything they can to keep it. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus is teaching that a person can somehow lose the kingdom of God or lose their salvation and can only keep it through great effort. Instead, the parable is describing the works, the evidence, the fruit of one who has truly found the kingdom of God, one who is a true disciple. Everything about this world has faded away, and all they want is to pursue the kingdom of God. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 16. Just a couple chapters over. Down in verse 24. Know what Jesus says to his disciples regarding the same theme. Then Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds." The true disciple of Jesus Christ will give up everything that this world offers in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 3. Here we really begin to see what a description of selling all or giving all means to the believer. Because one of the questions that we should rightfully ask is, how literal should we take the parable. Are we, the moment we're to be saved, supposed to go and sell all of our possessions? Well, it doesn't seem to be the case. If you look elsewhere in Scripture, we're certainly to be generous and to give to others. But if you've sold everything, you have nothing to give to others. We're told to make sure that we care for our own family. In fact, the one who doesn't care first for their family is worse than an unbeliever, we're told. So the emphasis doesn't seem to be so much on dispensing of and ridding yourself of every penny you own, and every vehicle, anything that could be attributed as wealth. So then the question rightly becomes is, what does it mean? We don't want to go too far, but we don't want to go too little either. We don't want to fall short of this calling, because this is the call of a disciple. Then beginning of verse 7, this is Paul describing his experience. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You know, there's all things that Paul would have considered as loss. You know, he spent a great deal of his life in education and learning the law. He didn't somehow forget all of those things, but rather all of the pride, everything that was tied to it, all of all of his identity that were tied to these things are gone. His identity, his sole identity, is to be found in Christ. Things don't matter in light of that. The only reason things matter at all is so that they allow us to reflect the glory of Christ, so that we can serve Christ more. The only reason he's given us the things he has is so that we can be stewards of it. What this means is that I take everything I have and I transfer them and the possession of them. I let go of them. They were God's to begin with, but from my perspective, I let go of them. They're not mine. If they get taken away, praise the Lord. It's what Job said. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He hasn't changed. Whether he gives in abundance or whether he gives in little. Because it doesn't matter how much I have, how little I have. What matters is my obedience and my faithfulness to Christ. Now, if you were like me when we read these things, when we read these things from the parable, when we read Matthew 16, when we read Philippians 3, and we read elsewhere in Scripture, you feel conviction. I know I do. And so it's in light of that that we need to do some hard work this morning. This is going to be a little painful because it's going to expose our weaknesses and it's going to expose where we are likely sinning. It will expose our shortcomings. But we need to do this. We, we need to do an inventory of our priorities. And we don't like doing this. I don't like doing this. Yeah, I, I would much rather be per- prefer, I would much rather be told how good I am, how great of a job I do, how wonderful I am, than to be told what my shortcomings are. But it's necessary. We will not grow, we will not be salt and light, certainly not the salt and light we are called to be if we will not do this. Even more importantly, our love for Christ and the warmth of our affection for Christ will grow cold if we are not willing to probe deeper. So the questions we want to start with are these. How do I know I count everything as loss? If that is the goal to which I am to obtain, how do I know I'm counting everything as loss? That I'm not holding on to something, some corner of my domain. How do I know I have that perspective? And then what if I struggle with this? What if I don't immediately want to let go of something? Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Does that mean I'm not a disciple? We'll start with the question of how 
can I know if I have this attitude, if I truly consider all things as loss? And to answer that question, we need to ask more questions. And we need to answer them honestly. I'm not asking you to answer them out loud. I'm not even asking you to tell the person next to you. But I am asking you to answer them honestly before the Lord. What sacrifices are you making now in growing in your love for Christ and seeking to obey him? When you think about your time, here's one of the most precious gifts and commodities in this life. Something you can't buy more of, you can't get more of. How are you spending it? Are you rightly prioritizing drawing near to Christ? And we've talked about what that looks like. It involves reading his word, praying, meditating. Are you doing these things? Are they priorities in your life? Or do you find that at the end of the day you realize, oh man, I let such and such get in the way. I let such and such get in the way. Even more painfully, did you find time for entertainment, social media, or other hobbies? If you have time for those things but not for Christ, then it is time to do a serious evaluation of your affection for Christ. Reading your Bible and praying more is not going to make you a Christian. But if you are a believer, they will deepen your affection for Christ. They will, as we've said before, kindle the flames of your devotion. They will give you strength to endure the journey and the trials of life with joy. Second question you can ask regarding your priorities when it comes is regarding the people of God. Is spending time with the people of God a priority to you? I'm not talking about being hindered providentially through sickness, disease, distance. But where it's in your power is being with the people of God a priority. We celebrated this morning church membership because that is an important thing to be a member of the local body. Yes. As a believer, you are a part of the, 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 the church universal. That is absolutely true. But throughout Scripture, over and over and over again, there is emphasis on drawing near in the fellowship of the local body. When you look at your calendar, is church and times of fellowship with believers a flexible event, or is it something that you instead schedule around? As parents, what are we teaching our children? Do our actions and choices speak to the importance of gathering together with the body of Christ? What do our priorities say about how necessary to our spiritual vitality being with the people of God is? When considering moving or a job, do you consider the spiritual consequences, good or bad, that such a move will have? Do you take the time to ask whether or not this choice this move will enhance your ability to grow and minister, or will it possibly be hindered? And then finances. Do you find yourself constantly thinking about money or wealth and having more? Does that occupy your mind more than how you can give of your finances and your wealth, of what you can do for Christ? Does your preoccupation prevent you from giving generously? And generously doesn't mean a certain dollar value. It's proportionate to what you have. Do you give up what little you have? Are you willing to give what little you have? Or does your preoccupation with it keep you from meeting the needs of those around you? As you consider denying ourselves 
What about around the house? What about others? Do you put others' needs before your own? Do you jump in and help one another regardless of whose chore it is? Do you look for ways to help ease the burden? Just silly things. Like, if there's one piece of dessert left. Do you hurry and eat it before anybody else notices? Or do you look to prefer others? Do you deny yourself? Do you give of your time? Do you, are you willing to lay aside what you enjoy, the time you would like to have for yourself, to instead help with the needs and the wants of your wife, of your children, of your husband, of others? What about in sharing the gospel? Are you afraid of your reputation or of losing some sort of standing before people? In the workplace, are you afraid of losing some sort of account, some sort of job? Are you unwilling to sell your reputation in an effort to rescue a person from the fires of hell? All of these are helpful, and it's not exhaustive, questions that help us to inventory our priorities. To inventory, have we really given all? Are we willing to give all? If we're not willing to do it in the little things, don't expect that it's going to happen and a switch will turn on where you'll be able to do it on the big things. Now again, none of these things save a person or automatically make them a citizen of the kingdom of God. But again, we're reminded of that statement by the reformers that we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. It is always accompanied by the fruit of repentance. And self-denial testifies that one is a disciple of Jesus Christ. So now we need to answer the question of what it means if I'm struggling with the above. What if an honest answer to any one of these questions or others that may have come into your mind reveals that I don't prioritize my time, my resources, my energy, what the Lord has blessed me with, I do not prioritize them rightly. I am not giving all to the Lord. I'm not willing to let go and relinquish some area of my life. Well, the very first question and thing I would ask is this, is does it bother you? If it does, if you are not content with this fact, if you are concerned that you are not selling all that you have, then while I do not desire to give any false assurance of salvation, I can say this, that someone who is dead in their sin is not going to feel conviction. Conviction is a sign of a person who is alive, who can feel not someone who is dead in their sin. So take heart in that. I do want to pause and say that if you run through this list of inventory, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, none of this bothers me. I, I feel no need to reprioritize my life. I see no need to make less of what I want and what my desires are. If that's you this morning, then my plea for you is to turn from your sin, to repent of your sin, to recognize your need for Christ who loves you, who cares for you who came to this earth, who truly did leave everything for you to make a way of salvation for you. 
I don't expect you to change. I don't expect you to try and do these things without absolutely exhausting and frustrating yourself if you are not a believer. If the Lord has not opened your eyes to the gospel, so the call this morning is to repent. The next question, if you do feel this conviction, if you recognize that we can't, you can do better to imitate the man and the merchant from these parables who sold all they had, the answer is to start where the Beatitudes began, with repentance. We confess to the Lord that we have not denied ourselves like we should. And I do not think I am in error to say that every one of us can go home and pray that this afternoon. That there is some area of our life that we are not denying ourselves the way we should. We confess that we have held back at times, that we have loved the world too much. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't make excuses for it. Confess it for the sin it is. And ask for forgiveness, knowing the promise of God that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then, having confessed our sin, the next step is to remember what it was that motivated the man and the merchant. What was it? It was the value of the kingdom of God. The surpassing value of the kingdom of God beyond anything else that they had. You will never appreciate the beauty of a sunrise if you don't wake up to see it. You're never going to have your breath taken away by the majesty of the Grand Canyon if you don't stand on its lip. You will never know the joy of being a parent until you hold that child in your arms for the first time. The reason that we struggle to consider all is loss, the reason we struggle to deny ourselves, the reason we sink beneath the waves of this world's trouble is because we have taken our eyes off of Jesus. We have forgotten to some degree the surpassing value of the king and the kingdom. That's why we struggle. And so the solution, as we've seen over and over again these past several weeks, is to draw near to Christ. To pick up your Bible, read through the Gospels, listen to them while you drive or walk or go about your day. And the more you do that, the more you will want to do that. Listen to teaching that makes much of Christ and the Lord. David says in Psalm 19, considering God's words, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Speaking of God's kingdom, he says in Psalm 84, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside of it. I would rather stand at the threshold, that is, right, on the, uh, right outside the door, the threshold of the house of my God, than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Being a disciple requires continual self-denial. It requires putting others' needs before our own. And as we, we all recognize, that is not our natural response. It requires supernatural effort that can only be accomplished through the power of the Spirit. If you try to do it in your own power, you will eventually give up or become bitter about it. The only way to do this with joy is through the Spirit. The writer of Hebrews describes this need for self-denial through the metaphor of a race, where he writes, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how do you persevere? How do you maintain the race? 
He goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's to remember and fix your eyes on Christ and his kingdom. We will struggle throughout this life with self-denial. We will not want to do it, and at times we will fail. But Christ has provided the means of forgiveness and the strength to persevere. And if you're a true disciple, then you will feel conviction at times. And you'll feel this struggle and fight. You will not be content with where you are at. But I say this too, beware of resting from the fight. The longer you rest, the dimmer your view of Christ will become. The more obscured your view of Christ becomes. We're going to close in a moment by singing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in that final stanza... There's an important line where he writes, Let good and kindred go, this mortal life also. As we sing this hymn together, certainly we are exalting the Lord. We're singing to him this morning. But we are also singing these words to encourage and motivate one another. Again, this is why God has given the local body. This is why the body is so important to one another. You are not supposed to do this alone. We are to come alongside to encourage one another. Because this is hard stuff. These are hard things to do. It goes against everything that is natural within us. As the Lord has given us the body to come alongside one another. And so as we stand to sing these words in just a moment... I want you to be thinking and singing to one another, reminding one another of the surpassing value of the kingdom of God and exhorting one another on this path of discipleship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these parables this morning, particularly the fact that these parables were given to disciples. Father, for those whose eyes have been opened, who have found that treasure, who have found what they've sought for so long, not knowing exactly what it was, but having found it, where you've opened our eyes to the gospel. Father, we know and we recognize that it takes a supernatural work to lay aside everything. Father, we are in the flesh so selfish, so self-absorbed. Father, help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on you. So we might serve you and serve others. And that we might proclaim the majesty and the beauty of your kingdom and of the cross. Thank you for the reminder this morning. Father, let these questions not quickly slip from our minds. But may we be pricked as we think about these things this week. Be quick to confess where we fall short. May we seek to draw near to you so that we might faithfully walk this path of discipleship, this narrow road. We pray these things in your name. Amen.